Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get to today's episode, I want to thank Herbal Active for sponsoring our show. Herbalactive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Be back a little bit into the episode to tell you more about it, but for now, um, for all your CBD needs, you can visit Herbalactive.com. Use the promo code TRAPDRAW20 for 20% off your order. Thanks to them, and on to the show. Mr. Jeezy, thank you, and congrats on your new uh, sports sports agency gig. That was very exciting in the news the other week. Um, Randy here, I'm solo, and this is a few days after we recorded with Jeff King. We ran into some audio difficulties. Tron and I had a great six-minute witty intro all recorded, and we messed up the mics, long story short. So... Apologize for that, um, and I also apologize, as you'll hear in the interview, Tron and I are a little, our voices are just a little softer um, than we'd like them to be. Again, we had some microphone difficulties. Jeff King, who does the majority of the talking, and quite frankly, um, is obviously the star of the show. He sounds perfectly normal, just like he always would, so I, I trust that it's not a big deal. Um, uh, Jeff has been a longtime caddy over 20 years on the PGA, the LPGA, uh, what was the web tour, uh, has seen a number of different things in and around the game of golf, very knowledgeable, uh, great storyteller. We were really excited to have Jeff on. He's obviously the owner of King Made Jerky, who we've had a relationship. They've sponsored the Trap Draw. They've been really good to us um, on, a, on a number of different areas. I... I hope this episode doesn't come across as an infomercial. That certainly wasn't our intent. Um, I think we both feel strongly that Jeff is a guest who, you know, stands on his own. His his experience and breadth in the game of golf uh, would be somebody we would be thrilled to talk to, as is. Um, when you layer in the King Made Jerky story, uh, which, in all honesty, it... it parallels no laying up a little bit and that you know it started out as a hobby no intention of turning it into a business and you know it's grown and found some success which is cool uh, I, I think it just adds to the story that that Jeff King has to share so um, I'll stop yammering now our interview is with Jeff King and I hope you enjoy the episode Jeff King good afternoon how are you man Doing well, doing well, guys. Where do we find you? Uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay, nice. LPJ event, is that right? What uh, what stop is this? It's uh, I forgot what they call it. The Indy Tech Women's Indy Tech something. I don't, I don't, it's at the uh, racetrack, Speedway Racetrack, where they have the Indy 500 out there. We're 
It's the, the Indie Women in Tech Championship driven by go. Group 1001. There you go. I can't believe you didn't remember the name of that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, hey. I have, a, uh, I have a tough time remembering the golf courses anymore, to be honest with you. Well, we want to get into, obviously, you have a rich history caddying on both the LPGA and PGA Tours. Um, and are an entrepreneur and have started a successful business, which we've had the privilege to work with you. Obviously, King made jerky. Uh, so I want to get into that origin story a little bit. But if you don't mind me starting, I know currently you're on the bag for Shan Chan Fang. This is a new bag for you. What was that process of switching bags mid-season like? And had you ever done that before? Oh, yeah. On the, on the women's tour, it happens quite a bit, <laughs> bit actually. Uh, no, it's, uh, her, her caddy was, uh, had a, had a hip, hip surgery. Uh, he's been waiting to have it done for quite a while and it's, you know, season's winding down. So, uh, they thought it was a good time. She wasn't playing all that much, uh, coming to this point of the season. So he's, he's going to be out about, uh, two, two to two and a half months. And, uh, she only played, uh, we played in Japan a couple weeks ago and then this week and then, uh, she's done really until he comes back, hopefully. If everything goes well, then uh, he'll be he'll, he'll start back up with her in in the Asia swing. But uh, he's just kind of monitoring it now, and I'm on kind of standby for uh, what what he needs. He's a really good friend of mine. I've known him for years. Uh, he's been working for her for seven years, so uh, they have a great relationship. They've had a lot of success. So uh, she she's called. Uh, I can't actually caddy for. Uh, he got sick in Asia a couple years ago and in japan so he had to go home so i ended up going and caddying for in china and it was a kind of an interesting story uh shan shan as uh many might know or might not know who shan shan is she's she's been a top 10 player you know staple in, on the lpga for quite a while now i'd, I'd guess seven eight years but uh she was the first girl to come here from china and actually win a golf tournament so when she called, uh, when she called up, when when her caddy got sick there in Japan, he had to fly back back home to go to the doctor, and uh, I filled in for her there in China. So we were in China. She had just won the tournament in Japan to move to number three in the world, and if she won this tournament in China, it moved her to number one in the world, and she did win the tournament. So it was a interesting story for her to be the first Chinese lady to come over and win a golf tournament. And then she was the first ever Chinese girl to become number one in the world. And she did it in China. So I had the pleasure of uh, being a part of that. That was extremely cool. One of, one of my highlights of uh, the 22 years I've been doing this for sure. Jeff, what, uh, what percentage of your history caddying has been spent on the PGA tour versus the LPGA? Uh, I think I'm at 22 seasons total. Uh, 14 have been on the LPGA and six on the PGA. And then I uh, did a couple on the web.com. I caddied for Luke Liss on the web.com. I think it was uh, 2013-ish, I want to say. And then I uh, caddied for Sung J.M. last year for most of the year uh, on the web.com or Corn Ferry Tour now. I think that's a topic that both Trong and myself are very um, eager to get into. I don't know. Should we just start here, Tron? Yeah. What I, What are the big difference between the tours? Is there anything that really stands out 
in terms of preparation or that makes your job markedly different? Yeah. Uh, I get asked that quite a bit. <laughs> I think the answer is different every time I get asked. No, I, you know what? Honestly, uh, environment-wise, the LPGA Tour is very much more relaxed. Um, great guys, you know, great pack of caddies. Everybody helps each other out quite a bit. Uh, you know, there is a lot of turnover. But uh, the, the, the main reason for that is the girls depend on you quite a bit more than, than the guys do. The guys are... Uh, pretty strong believers in themselves as, as everybody know to get to get to that level you you have to believe that you know you are the best in the world you know regardless of what the results say week in and week out and, and they do you know a lot of them a lot of them do believe that they uh they can do anything with a golf club and a golf ball and it, it goes a long way in this game where the girls uh rely a little bit more on practice and they re rely a little bit more on um outside, you know, helpers to help them out. And, and when things aren't going well, you know, they just shake it up and everybody understands that's the program. Um, there's no hard feelings ever. It's just, that's, that's the way it goes. You know, and when things are going well, you, you just kind of cruise with it. Sometimes it lasts a year, two years, you know, sometimes longer and sometimes not as long, but, uh, you know, the guys are, are, are out there more or less, uh, you have, you have to know what you're doing for sure, and that's why you're seeing a, a lot of friends and family members coming out and caddy on the PGA Tour because they don't require a, a whole lot of help. You know, they want somebody that they're comfortable with they can talk to as a right-hand man out there. You know, when times are tough, they can bounce some stuff off them, have, you know, a little pick-me-up combo. Um, and they don't – there's not a lot of guys who really need, you know, a lot of help. Once you get to that level, man, they've been – They've been down the road, you know, through the mini tours and the the everything. You know, it's it's tough to get there. And a lot I've heard a lot of guys say in the past, and I do agree with it, that it's so hard to get there. But once you're there, man, it's like ten times easier once you once you learn the program of the PGA Tour. You know, whereas the LPGA doesn't really have that many stepping stones. You know, it's just bang Q school. You get there, and you know the expectations are you have to do good. And if you don't, you just start change, changing things. They do. They change clubs, coaches, caddies. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. I don't really know how to explain it. It's not a bad thing. It's just uh, it's the way it's been for a long time. What's the longest you've ever been on a bag? Uh, about two and a half years. And what's the shortest? A week. A week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've uh, there was a year uh, way back when, uh, kind of toward the beginning of, of the career, five six years into it, where I was kind of bouncing back and forth between Web.com and and the LPGA, and I was just kind of doing one or two weeks with everybody throughout the year, and I kind of found, and the players kind of found that it it just kept things fresh. You know, there wasn't um, a lot of time to get to know all the nuances of each other, and you just went out there, you caddied, they played golf, and I had a lot of success doing that and, and the players I caddied for did as well. Unfortunately, it's gotten to be, there's a little bit more money. You can't really do that anymore. You know, you got to kind of stick it out with, with each other for uh, through thick and thin. And if the results are there, you stick, you, you're, you're the, you're the right hand man. If the results aren't there, they're probably going to shake it up. So. Do you ever get used to the uncertainty? Uh, 
yeah, you, you can. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty personable guy. I have, I have a lot of really good relationships with people that I have and have not caddied for, and even people that I've caddied for in the past, I'm still great friends with. Um, I think uh, you you know though when when things aren't going well, both both parties try to press a little bit. You know, the player wants to try to practice this a little bit more, or do this differently, and usually in golf not all the time, but when you start changing, that means uh, that, that leads to trouble. Uh, the results aren't going to be what you're expecting when you start changing things, just with anything in life and in sports. It's like, you know, that, that, that old saying, you know, if it's not broke, don't, don't try to fix it. And once you get something that's working, and you've seen it time and time again, where, you know, players finishing in the top 10, seven, eight times a year, it's a really good season, but they haven't won. Well, you're knocking on the door and the door is going to open, but, you know, nine out of 10 times you see, you know, they change a coach or they change a cat. You know, it's like that's about the worst thing that you can do and instead of just keep knocking on it. So uh, in terms of the uncertainty, the caddy most of the time knows when things are getting sour that uh, the time's coming. And, you know, a lot of caddies take it upon themselves to go look for another job as well and, and quit the player. But in this job, it, it's uh it's weird. You're, you're, you get uh, looked down up upon if you if you quit a player, but it's okay for the player to fire you. You know, it's that it's a weird business. That's that's all. Yeah, it's kind of a double standard. Yeah, because you don't you don't want to make anybody upset because the job's so reputation oriented. You know, and you don't. I think it literally in 22 years, I I do believe I've quit two people in my my entire career. You know, just based on the fact that I want to stick it out and help as long as I can. And if I'm no longer helped, then they, they can change themselves and rather than me, you know, saying, hey, you're not playing good enough for me. I'm not, you know, who am I to say that? You know, my name's not on that bag. You know, theirs is. So um, they've hired me as a helper and, and using my experience and knowledge to help them. If it's not what they're uh, looking for or it's not helping, then I, I totally encourage that they do do something different. Can we ask you about the times you did quit? <laughs> uh, you know what? Both of them were because of lost cards on the PGA Tour. You know, and they had to go back to web.com. And um, well-known, but not well-known enough, it's impossible for a caddy to make a living on the web.com tour. It's just yeah. uh, those guys, there's only a handful of them that make, a, you know, a decent living. You know, the, the, the PGA Tour wants that to be, Either, you know, a, a tour, whether you're good enough to, to get to the next level or you're not, get out of here. We don't want you sticking around. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate because it's the only sport in, in all the major sports where, you know, there's not a single A, a double A, a triple A, a D league, a summer league, all the stuff that baseball and, and football and basketball has. It's just, you know, now they're starting to incorporate the Latino America and the Can Canadian tour, but still those guys don't make any money you know it's top five or i don't even know what, what the requirements are to get to the corn ferry tour off those yeah, top tours. Five. yeah they just started doing that you know and it's like there's so many millions of people i mean you guys know how many golf fan i mean you have i mean everybody loves this game and there's so many people that are good at it and there's no place to play i mean i just went to taiwan with a, a, a fellow of mine, a friend of mine that I uh, actually did the Asian Tour Q School with him back in December. He, he played with Matthew Neesmith at South Carolina, and he lost his card on the web, so he went to 
European Tour School. He missed there, and the only thing that was left for him was Asian Tour Q School. And he finished seventh at the finals, and he got in five events the entire year. <laughs> God, that's brutal. Brutal. How'd you get into caddying? Uh, I used to be a teacher with David Ledbetter at the uh, what is now the IMG Academy down in Bradenton. Okay. It used to be the David Ledbetter Junior Golf Academy. So as soon as I finished college, I went down there. I started uh, working with the juniors. And at the time, we had the Sean O'Hare and uh, Casey Wittenberg and a bunch of really, really talented girls that uh, made it to the LPGA. And their, their career was relatively short. But um, when Sari Pak was actually a an amateur and she came over and she played a couple U.S. Opens and a, and a couple other professional events, uh, David himself wanted me to caddy for her and, you know, kind of keep an eye on her on the road at the time. I, she was the first Korean girl to come over. And as we know, she kind of paved the way for what it is now. I mean, the, the, there's quite a few of them out there, but, um, he wanted me to kind of keep an eye on her on the road with her golf swing and relay messages. And, and I spent some time with her before she ended up turning pro, uh, she wanted the guy that caddied for in, in those U.S. Opens and the amateur events. So she went that route, which was cool. But apparently uh, that news got into some sort of Korean media. And the next year, the, the new Korean uh, lady, number one lady, Mihyun Kim, came over and asked if I would caddy for her. And I had gotten all my certifications from, from the academy. And I was young and, and uh, dumb and love golf and love you know it'd be great to watch good golf make some money see some great golf courses so i ended up doing that with her uh back in 1998 was my first year so and i everybody told me you're gonna get vacuumed in like everybody else i said no 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 i said the same thing everybody else did so i know i didn't the stock answer i nailed it was you know i'm just gonna do it two or three years and then i'll go back to teaching yep here you are talking to me 22 years later part of you must love that lifestyle um did you think you would enjoy it and does the travel ever you know beat you down get old especially on the lpga tour where it's much more worldwide than the pga tour yeah you know what um right out of right out of high school i i took off out of my hometown and went 10 hours away to college out in kansas and at first i was uh deer in headlights i didn't like it i was kind of a bigger city guy growing up just outside chicago and i went to a little small town in kansas but as uh college went on you know as they say that college experience there's so many different things that it teaches you and that was one of them was to be on your own and uh you know five years in college i i started to enjoy the travel and then i, I went down to florida like i said to that academy and uh when i had the opportunity to start doing it full time. It was the greatest thing. I, I, jumping in your car. And at the time, the LPGA, you could rip it 10, 12, 15 weeks in a row in your car. You and the, your buddies, you know, all the other caddies, we'd follow each other from place to place, drive it six, eight hours, you know, stop on a Sunday night, you know, have fun, hit, stay at the same hotel, hit a bar, eat some food. You know, that, that was, that was really good times at, at that age in the mid twenties. Now, uh, like you said, you know, all over the world, it's uh, at times, yes, they actually the traveling itself doesn't hasn't really bothered me. But the airports, airports, I'm about over. Them. Yeah, I get I get uh, there's that there's that time, you know, those times when you're packing at home and you don't want to leave. 
But uh, you know, once you hit the road, you're going to try to win a golf tournament, and you, you know the program and the airport's part of it. You know, you just get past it, and once you get to that city or country or wherever you're at, it's uh, it's like riding a bike, man. It's like okay, here we go, and you, you let the fun begin. And and once we're once we're actually at the tournaments, man, it's nothing. It's nothing short of, uh, you know, great life, great lifestyle. It is a lifestyle, though, because, you know, it, when you do it for, for this long, 22 years, and I know there's guys that have been on here 35 years, long, you know, longer, even though the average life of a, a professional tour caddy is only about three years, um, the guys who have been around and been doing it for a long time, it's like when you stay home for an extended period of time, you know, those Christmas holidays and that six, eight, you know, six, eight weeks, you kind of get, kind of get, you know, wondering what you're supposed to, you feel like you're supposed to be going somewhere, you know, because you don't really have a life at home to where you have a program that you do the same routine every single day, like you do on the road. So you kind of start to feel like, you know, what the heck am I doing? That's actually how the whole beef jerky thing started, but we, we'll get into that when you guys are ready. <laughs> uh, so on the subject of travel and airports, uh, what are your favorite airports, least favorite airports, U.S. and worldwide? Wow, great question. Favorite airports? Singapore. Singapore has a great airport. Um, Thailand has a, a great airport in in Bangkok. I tell you what, the the ones that are really good are the your small little. You you can run off the plane. Your bags are ready on the on the carousel. You you know jump in your rental car and you go. And it took you twenty to thirty minutes. Uh, you know, like a Rochester, New York, or, uh, you know, this one here in Indianapolis. Um, but, ooh, man, worst airport, that's tough because it's probably my where I grew up at Chicago. <laughs> that's tough, yeah. I mean, I have to say that because we, we go through there in the summertime all, all the time, and it's just tough. I mean, flights are canceled, delayed. The airport itself is fine. I mean, they got all the... The, the good food i can't wait to get there to eat but you know i've been stuck in there overnight sometimes sleeping at that place you know and it's it's uh i, I wouldn't call I, I wouldn't call it the worst airport because that's my my stomping grounds but i would i will say i probably had the most worst of, of the worst experiences in that airport well, I, I know you're of, not alone in that yeah. either there's every time i take a red eye back through there it's like what, i'm never doing this again and then yeah. sure enough Summertime though, in the summer you just expect it. You're like, here we go. Anything I can do to not go through O'Hare, but uh, sure enough, man. Every time you get dinged with that that first text message of delayed 45 minutes, you know it's not going to be the last. Jeff, you talked about your introduction into caddying. I'm curious, what's your experience with the game of golf? Did you play growing up? Uh, was it something that's been a part of your life for a long time? I'm curious, you know. You how you and the game found each other. Yeah, I, I actually, I did, but it, it was the last of, of five sports that I actually tried growing up. Uh, I grew up in, in Indiana, so basketball. Uh, obviously, my, my father was a, a high school basketball coach in Indiana for about 30 years. So uh, I was shooting basketballs when I was three years old. I was winning free throw contests by the time I was five. And then, uh, you know, it got into basketball was there and then he started throwing baseballs with us and I started little league baseball at age seven and then playing soccer because he had to wear me out because I was a little rubber band you know energizer kid uh so he let me run around playing soccer 
and then I, once I got to high, high school, I actually I was 10 years old when he introduced me to golf. So I take that back. Hockey was probably the last uh, sport that I ended up playing. But uh, yeah, he, he he was in a golf league and he would take me out and just let me smack balls. And I, you know, it's just like any any other kid that that uh, picked up a golf club. As soon as you hit that one good shot, it was on. And I was a competitor. Uh, we won everything in baseball, basketball, soccer, every every sport. My father coached me, and we won. And uh, when he introduced me to this golf game. It, he didn't know too much about it, but he, he would stand there with me all day, every day. And I built my own hole outside, of outside right by this expressway. I had a little 90 yard hole with a bunker and I built a green and, you know, the whole shot. And I ended up just practicing and I got good. And, uh, I ended up being one of the best in the state of Indiana by, by the time I was a junior in high school and went to school on a, a scholarship to play golf. So yeah, 10, uh, 10 was my age when I, when I started the game of golf. So 30, well, I guess I would age myself. If I say that. So yeah, no, it's been a long, long time. How'd you link up with Ledbetter? Another great story. The the, the golf course that I caddied at, uh, right by my house there when I was growing up, right by my little practice hole, was a country club, and uh, one of the sons of one of the members would always ask me to come out and play with him after I got done caddying. So we'd go out and play little money games, and I did that for a few years. He went to a different high school. Uh, than I did, but I knew him really well. And after I had finished college, I needed to do an internship, and I just started sending resumes all over the place. And I got the reply back from that uh, Ledbetter Academy, and he was down there, actually an instructor already. So he didn't. Uh, he only went to college for two years. Uh, the way it turned out, his his sister ended up going to the academy as a student. And he went there and became an instructor. So he saw my resume on the uh, on the human resources lady's desk one day, and he just randomly went in there to talk to her about something. And he saw this thing on a desk, and he said, "Jeff King." He's like, "I know a Jeff King. Is that Jeff King from Indiana?" And she said, "Yeah, he's from Indiana." She's like, "He said, I know that Jeff King." So, uh, long story short, they they were getting about three to five hundred resumes a month for their worldwide academies and they were hiring between three and five people a year. So, uh, that at the time, that's how, how crazy that was. And he, he'd called me up. He said, Hey man, when can you get here? You're in. And I said, I'm in where, where? I didn't even know where he was at. <laughs> I said, get where? Where, where, where am I going? I graduate in three weeks. Well, where are you shipping me to? So he said, yeah, we're in just South of Tampa. When could you get here? I, and I told him the date. I said, I'll be there, buddy. So. Having worked down there, I'm sure you saw some like cautionary tales, right? Either you know kids that came in with exceptional ceiling and you know kind of got burned out or overpairing parents or kind of all the all the things that can sidetrack a career. Oh, you see it all the time. You still see it. Yeah. Oh, jeez. That's the thing. I mean, what a great topic that is, too. I mean, I, I can probably talk to you guys about this for hours. Um, the thing is this. it's Even in even in ice hockey, and I'll use myself as an example, um, the cultural differences are so – the belief is so different. You know, we we here in, in, in this country, there are some overbearing parents for sure, but for the most part, the parent introduces something to the child. If it's good, they support that child and in, in that journey, whatever it is, you know, sport or non-sport. And if it doesn't work, there's something else to do, right? 
we'll, we'll figure something out. Hey, we can always go do this X, Y, Z. Well, when these kids come over here from the other countries, it's, it's golf or nothing. And they, it's all day, every day. And that's all they know how to do. And if they don't succeed, then there's some serious repercussions. A lot of them borrow money to bring their, their kids over here and they have to pay that money back. You know, that's just, just one. They got other family members that they have to support through this child and golf. So the parents are making sure that, you know, they're out there practicing and burnout is, is, uh, it's like a nickname for golf uh, in professional golf. If you ask me, I mean, I've seen so many of the, the, the ways that the good players and the best in the world do it right. And then I watch, I'm kind of a sponge when it comes to the game, because when I have to help somebody and they ask a question, I want to tell them something that I know for a fact, that's what the best players in the world do. So I've learned all that stuff over the years and you, you consistently see it uh, just more with the men kind of in the, in the levels getting to the corn Ferry tour and getting to the PGA tour on the LPGA. It's pretty evident. There's a lot of parents out there. Um, they practice, they, they just, it's all day. It, time management is the most important thing in any sport and, and rest period. You know, in the analogy I always use is, you know, when race cars start a race, they don't start with a half a tank of gas. And you can't get any more black and white than that. And to explain to a 20 year old that, you know, on Tuesday after you play nine holes, you only need to do this and this, and it shouldn't take you longer than an hour, hour and a half, because you need to rest. That doesn't work. And you know, when, when that, when those words go in one ear and out the other, then you hear on Friday, I'm tired. Well, you're in turn two and you're tired. Guess what? Mm -hmm. Tigers just made four in a row to take a three shot lead in your time. You know, you, you've seen it so many times and you try to explain it. Sometimes some of them listen to sometimes, you know, most of the times they don't because they have another voice telling them that they have to do this, do this, do this. But uh, the other thing you also see is I, growing up around or, or, or teaching those those kids in, in the way I was trained to be an instructor. I don't know anything about being a golf pro. I don't know how to fold a shirt in a shop. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to write calligraphy. I don't know how to do any of that. I know how to, to get people to play tournament golf and, and play well. So when I'm, I'm asked to, you say you want to do this X, Y, Z, well, here's the game plan. And if, if you have to let them make mistakes because that's the only way everybody learns, they can't be told to do everything. You, you put the food on the plate, let them eat what they want to eat. And when they get sick to their stomach, they're going to come back and ask you for different food, you know? And I, I always say, you see the parents and the, and the coaches and, there's even some college coaches. It's like once practice goes so far, because when you're good, then it turns into the mental game, right? It turns into the belief. And I've seen a lot of good players and, and you guys probably have too, that just never made it. You know, it's like you, you get to that level that your parents can't help you be number one in the world. They can help you be good and have a good swing and do all that fun stuff with golf. But in order to be number one in the world, you have to have somebody who's been inside the ropes with some experience to guide you, to put you on that path. And then the belief in yourself will, uh, 
you know, see how good, how strong mentally you are to take it to, you know, as high as you could take it. But what percentage of your job is between the first tee and the 18th green versus everything else? Oh, woo. Great question. 15 percent. 15 to 20, no more than 20 percent. Checking the win and telling them what club to hit or, you know, what a carry number is or which way a putt's reading. That's the easy stuff. It really is. Uh, so so that other 80 percent, what's that comprised of? Is that just range time and, and you know, kind of those meals sitting down with the player and getting in their head a little bit? Yeah. Uh, All of the above and, and then some more. Um, probably there's a lot of uh, explaining, you know, there's a lot of questions, you know, how does, you know, Rory do this or how does Brooks do this or, you know, when they're doing this, you know, the, the time management thing again is, is, uh, is a huge deal at a professional level because of the rest thing. You know, so when you have to explain all that and it's like, okay, we should be doing this, you know, that that's all kind of considered mental training, right? All, all that stuff is learning. It's it, when you, people think of mental stuff, it's, oh, you got a one shot lead on the 18th tee, you know, how strong are you? Did you snap hook it or did you hit it down the middle? That's, that's only part of it. Right. And uh, another, another great thing, you know, I asked, I asked just about everybody I caddy for, you know, what? what what part of the game do you think it's mental at at this level and every every single one of them says the same thing 90 95% and then you look and you say well how much do you practice that 90 or 95% the mental part and the answer to a lot of them zero you know so you just answered you know what your own issues are now you know you want help with that kind of stuff i can guide you in the right direction but uh you know the if it's 95%, how come your day, you were out here eight hours, you spent three hours on the driving range, hour and a half on the putting green, you ate for an hour, and you were two hours in the short game area, you did nothing, which you just told me was 90 to 95% of the game. So when when they hear that, then, you know, the, the light kind of goes off a little bit because, you know, it's, a lot of times I say it too. I'm like, you're, 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 you're definitely good enough. You know, the golf game is not the issue. Which is weird, you know, because they every every single person out, every person that plays golf, they think it's the golf game, except the, the guys, you know, the Rorys and the Brookses and the Patrick Reeds and those guys. I mean, how do figure, you practice that? What's the like? What's what's the recipe or what's the the process for that? Honestly, it's and I wouldn't even call them psychologists. You know, there, there there's people that are just knowledgeable of the game. You know, and I I help people quite a bit with with that side of it as well. You know, in certain situations and in, in the, the, the again, I'm going to say the time management, you know, when to practice, when not to practice, when course management. And uh, I, I say this a lot, too. You know, the, the web.com tour is or the Corn Ferry tour, sorry, um, is probably where the best golf in the world played because those guys practice hitting at the flag every single hole. And they go out, you know, you see cuts out there. I remember one summer it was back-to-back weeks six under seven under six under was a cut those guys are making birdies man i don't care if you're playing in your backyard they're executing yeah you 28 under par and you finish fifth man you're looking at yourself in the mirror going i'm not shaving for two months right i'm i don't have time i got to get my ass out there and practice but uh 
you know, and, and you see it a lot. Like you see the guys that get to the PJ Tour, they end up back on the Corn Ferry Tour. They bounce back and forth a little bit because the the guys who are on the PJ Tour figure it out. Everybody can hit it at the flag. It's the guys who know when not to hit it at the flag and, and make that mistake and make par, take the 20-footer, take the 30-footer. Those are the guys who make a lot of money. So it sounds like going back to your point about making the mistakes earlier, like make the mistakes and then learn from them. That's the, that's the key. That's what separates, right? Correct. Yeah, 100%. And, and that, that Corn Ferry Tour, is it's tough because they play so many courses where if you fire it at a flag and miss it short side, you flip it up there, make par, and you're out of there. Go try to birdie the next one. You know, the PGA Tour, you miss a green short side. You're going to make five more often than you're making four. Mm-hmm. So those that's you know those are the fine lines of you know Matt Kuchar is the greatest example in the history of the PGA Tour in recent years. I mean this guy puts his ball in the right spot and and you see him making twenty footer after twenty footer and you think he's a great putter. He is a good putter. There's no doubt about it. But now think about it. He has thirty twenty footers a week because that's where he hits it. He's not trying to hit it at the flag. He's trying to hit it to twenty feet. You know when you when you play the numbers game and you have 30, 20 footers, well, dang it, you're going to, you're going to make a lot of them. Right. And you know, the, the year Jordan Spieth had a few years back, he was the best from whatever it was, 15 to 20 feet or 20 to 25. It was an insane number better than the second best. That tells me he is, he is not making the mistake firing at a flag when he's not supposed to, he is putting his ball where it's supposed to be. And he's converting. He's executing. Now he's winning tournaments. When you do that, and you're making putts. You're you're in the last couple groups on Sunday. You know. So. Everybody, Randy here. Uh, real quick, want to give a, another thank you to Herbal Active. Herbalactive.com. U R B A L A C T I V. Um, Tron, you've been singing the praises of Herbal Active. Tell me about. Uh, tell me about it. I'm a pretty skeptical guy by nature. <laughs> That's what I like about you. Yeah. Uh, hopefully not cynical, just skeptical. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of, kind of a, a show me kind of guy. But um, you're a Missourian. I'm not at all. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Which the Missourians don't like me, but that's a whole other thing from the PGA Championship a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, started. I, I don't know. I kind of didn't know what the CBD craze was all about. Um, my mom had her hips replaced uh, consecutively the last couple of years and refused to take any painkillers for it. Just wanted to take, you know, just kind of do it naturally. So she actually started taking CBD, started buying it for Neil and I and started sending it down. And I just kind of rolled my eyes a little bit and waved it off. And then, and, and, and actually took it a little bit and didn't notice a big difference. And then, um, herbal active reached out a few months back and, and said, Hey, we'll just, you know, I know you guys are skeptical about this. Just let's just send you some. And, so I actually took it then, and I was like, I noticed a night and day difference in both my sleeping and uh, just like my general like joint kind of like lubricant, basically. <laughs> like like my joints just felt like they were, especially my knees. Um, well, let me ask, what what products do they have, and what's your regimen been like? Well, well, I've been singing the praises of the mints, and they told me they said like you're not even getting like the maximum benefit because you're just taking the mints. You gotta take the you gotta take the drops too. So started taking the drops about uh, fourteen days ago, and yeah, they were right. Um, but yeah, I haven't I haven't slept like this in in. Well, probably a dozen years and um 
and yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure everybody's results are different, but I can confidently say that, uh, that this stuff, like, it's not just marketing bullshit or like, there's, there's a reason that, that this stuff's kind of blowing up herbalactive.com uh, and it's trapjaw20 to get 20% off. Awesome. Uh, now back to our interview with Jeff King. Let me ask you this, switching gears a little bit. Why jerky? Mm. Well, <laughs> I think it was it was rewritten here recently when we uh, joined up with the PGA Tour and they kind of rebranded some stuff. It said, uh, it said that the the title on the back of the package said golf made King and King made jerky or golf pick King or something like that. I can't remember the exact words, but it was perfect. It was like, uh, when I saw that, I was like, that's so, so perfect because jerky was, it was an accident. It wasn't really an intention, intentional thing to start any sort of business. I mean, never, I mean, trust me guys. I went to college five years, didn't take one business class. I was just like the rest of the guys who just wanted to play sports. Um, so I, I was just, like I said, you know, when you're at home for a period of time and you're, you're bored, you know, you stay, I don't have any children. I'm not married. So, um, I used to have a dog when the dog passed away. I was kind of, what do I do with myself? You know what, you know, these two months. So I went and got a, I was like, I, I eat beef jerky. I don't care till this day. I mean, I did it two weeks ago. I, I stopped into a gas station somewhere and, Missouri, and I bought every single brand that I've never seen before. I do it everywhere I go. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care. Unless I can tell if it looks like the cardboard, I won't buy that stuff. But if I haven't seen it, I buy it. And I've been doing that for years. So I just kind of got a little bit, uh, I was noticing a pattern, man. Everything was just kind of cardboard, salty, you know, breaking your jaw kind of stuff. And I was like, man, I wonder how they do this stuff. It'd be cool to go and just try to make it something that was a little bit more easy on the, on the tooth, you know, like I don't like eating something and having my jaw be sore when I'm done with it. Right. So I did. And I Googled a recipe, man, Alton Brown said, you, you know, go get some flank steak and, and go get a dehydrator. I went to the Bass Pro Shop and sure enough, I went and got some Miller lights and boom, started dumping some stuff <laughs> in a bowl and got the knife out, you know, chopped my fingers up quite a bit. The first few times at, it. uh, but there's, it was exciting, man, because it was just like, you know, I, I, I grew up playing five different sports. You didn't win at first, but you had to work to get better, and then you won. And I didn't quit until I won. I had to win ice hockey. I had to win a state championship. Golf, I won everything. Baseball, it's just like, it was it was that kind of thing to me. You know, like the first stuff came out, and I took a bite of it, and it was just like, it was like you know, like how you take and you straight into the garbage can from the mouth kind of thing. Just right. Was, was it the taste or the texture or it was bold. It was terrible. It was the, it was undercooked. It was, it was, it was awful. I mean, I, I, you know, because what, what, what are you trained to taste? You know, salt, salty cardboard smoke. I, it tasted like none of that stuff. So I went back and I looked at this stuff again and I was like, all right, maybe it was this, you know? So you put a little bit more of that in there a couple Miller lights and then and you throw a little more of that in there. And then second one came out and it was all right, but then I didn't know how to work the dehydrator that well. It was still a little bit undercooked. And then of course you got to overcook one because that's what you do. You know, if you hit three left, the next one's going right. We all do the same thing. And uh, so we overcooked one. And then one time I made it and uh, I kind of said, you know, this is all right. Yeah. You know, like, this, this is actually, I would eat this stuff. So now my problem was, I didn't remember what I put in it. 
<laughs> so, yeah. It, like when they first started the whole brand, you know, the King made jerky. Well, where, where are your recipes? And I looked at him like with this blank face, like, what do you mean? Where are my recipes? And I just pointed in my head. I was like, they're in here. <laughs> you didn't write them down. I'm like, Oh no, you don't write them down. I mean, like I made this stuff a thousand times now. You just know, man, if it's not where you, you know, you stick your finger in the stuff, you drink two more Miller lights you, and it can, comes out perfect. It, it got to a point there, but when it all started, if that's what you're asking, I was caddying for Luke List on the web nationwide at the time, and we were playing a practice round in Miami. And uh, if you've had any experience with Luke List, you will know. I mean, anybody, if you talk to anybody, they will say the same thing about Luke List. He is the nicest human being in, on the planet. He's salt of the earth. And... Uh, I told him before we'd started, and he treated me like a brother. We were, we were like brother. It was great. We had a great relationship. Um, uh, I told him, I said, I was messing around in the kitchen, and I made some beef jerky. So if you get hungry, like, and I'm thinking, like, he's not even listening to me, because why would he? You're a caddy. You're not making beef jerky. You're an idiot, right? So he goes, um, I said, if you get hungry, there's some beef jerky in the bag. I made some stuff, whatever. So we get on about the fourth or fifth hole. He said, you said you got beef jerky in the back? I said, yeah, it's in there. Help yourself. And he took a bite. He took two bites and about, you know, 10, 20 yards down the fairway. He looks at me. He's like, dude, you made this? And I was like, yeah. And now I'm waiting for the bash, right? Like, oh, my God, I'm going to puke or something. <laughs> and he, he goes, dude, this is like the best jerky I ever had in my life. And I started laughing. I'm like, Luke, come on, man. Don't be... This is Luke List. This is what he does. This is the best trick because, you know, he knows you. He's your boy. He never says a bad word about anybody or anything. And I say, yeah, whatever. Luke, don't give me that, man. I was like, it really is. It, is it all right? He goes, no, I'm being serious, man. This is the best beef jerky I've ever had. How long have you been making it? Like your whole life? And I was like, eh, two weeks. <laughs> uh, you know, so we're playing with Scott Brown and Scott Brown's a, he's a massive jerky fan and he stuck his hand in the bag. He's like, God dang, man, what'd you put in this? And I'm like, I don't know, man. It's like, dude, this stuff has crack in it, man. I got, give me another pee. I'm like, what the heck are these guys doing? I mean, the whole bag was gone by the end of the hole. And it, it was a pretty big bag, you know, half a pound or so. So Scott Brown comes up to me the next day and he goes, hey, man, I've been telling some guys about your jerky, man. Let me know when you bring it back out. And I did the, the following week. And guys, are here they come, man. I mean, I'm not joking. Like, I put the bag down on the putting green, and it was an ambush, man. I mean, it was, get, get, where is it? And I'm like, yeah, hold on a second, man. First of all, the caddy makes, you know, whatever on the web.com tour. That meat's expensive, boys, right? <laughs> so, all of a sudden, Luke says, where's the jerky? I said, it's in the bag. He said, there's nothing in there. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. Where'd the jerky go? It's gone. All right, well, I made some backups. I had more in the car, the hotel room, whatever it was. So I brought it back out. Scott Brown comes up to me and says, hey, man, he goes, if I get some people to buy that stuff off you, would you make it for them? And now at the time, me and Luke are on the range. And, you know, when you're working, you're working. And I'm like, look at Scott Brown. I said, ha, ha, like, whatever. Like, get out of here. I'm not out here to sell beef jerky. I'm out here to try to win golf tournaments. And he goes, no, I'm serious, man. If if I get some guys, would you make it? And I said, yeah, whatever. You know, did I kind of threw my hand out? Sure. And he came back the next day. I got four guys that, that are willing to buy some jerky off you if you make it for him. I said, okay, well, next time I'm home, I'll make it. You know, now it's it's turning into a funny thing. 
for everybody. And sure enough, I took that stuff. I went home and I brought that stuff out and I sold it to him for $40 for a pound. And I'm not exaggerating within two months, easily 70% of the web.com tour guys were buying beef jerky off me. And so, now I got. So how did you things. scale your production? Like how, I mean, especially in the midst of the season, buddy, I was working harder at home than I was on the road. Easily promise you that it turned into three. I ended up with five dehydrators in my kitchen. I ended up moving everything out of my kitchen. I brought a, like a shelving unit from Ikea in it. I had all the ingredients on there. I went and bought one of those standalone freezers, you know, the thing, the big ice chest looking thing for meat. And my house turned into a beef jerky factory. And as far as flavors go, are you just making regular? Are you doing buffalo? Are you doing different different sorts of flavors at that point? I did whatever they asked for. The flavors that you guys are eating was uh, they're, they're the players' creations. And it was uh, when I was caddying for Vaughn Taylor. Vaughn, Vaughn Taylor and I, um, we're, we're both big uh, cookout freaks. Uh, we, we try anything on the grill. Matter of fact, he just sent me some videos not, not a couple months ago. He was uh, trying to make beef jerky on his green egg, you know, so um, we we always grilled barbecue or uh, chicken wings and unknown story, but King's Wings have been going since college. Anybody who ever comes in town to our house always, it was, they wanted King's Wings because of the sauce. So I, I made this buffalo sauce. It's a buffalo sauce, but it, it is now what's in that, in King Made Jerky. But it's not the traditional buffalo sauce. There's other things that are done to it. But uh, Vaughn Taylor said, uh, hey, why don't you try making some jerky with that buffalo sauce? And I just looked at him because at the time we were just doing like a DJ like the pepper one. And I did like the original what is now the original smoky one and then i did a spicy one i did a ghost pepper one a lot of guys like the hot one um but everybody just kind of had their own ideas and and vt said why don't you try the buffalo sauce with it so i did and i brought it out and everybody you know anytime i brought anything new out everybody just tried it and gave me their opinion and i would run back to the kitchen and make the tweaks and bring it back out and see what they said so everything that everybody's eating those guys it was a trial and error they tested everything until that came out the way everybody wanted it. But, um, and then I brought the Buffalo out and everybody loved it. And, uh, Pete Tomasulo, Peter Tomasulo played on the web for a long time, a couple years on the PGA tour said to me, if you made this sweet, he said, I think it would be the best stuff ever. And I went home. Sure enough, I made it sweet and we called it sweet Buffalo for a good, you know, about a year, year and a half. And that was it. When people tried that thing, that's where it came from. Everybody said that stuff's got crack in it. Do you ever, like, especially when you go over with the LPGA Tour uh, over to Asia, do you ever just wander around those markets and look for different stuff, different ingredients to, to kind of try out? Oh, 100%. I actually, I'm, I actually have met one of the manufacturers over there. They have their own brand. And um, I've, I've talked to them several times about how they make their stuff and uh, what they put in it. They, The majority of Asian beef jerky is really sweet they actually call it fruit jerky um they use a lot of strawberries in it and it's extremely tasty extremely sweet uh super soft it's really really good i was just in japan a couple weeks ago like i said with shan shan and uh went into a 7-eleven and they had about four different brands in there bought them all 
Well, Jeff, get you out of here with just a couple more uh, rapid fire random questions, if you don't mind. And the one I have is, what's the one event you haven't caddied in that would be at the top of your list? I've done them. I did the Masters. I did the U.S. Open. Um, Ryder Cup, man. I, you know, how could you leave that out? You know, team golf being an individual sport. I've always been a, on team sports, and golf has always been the only individual sport I've ever played on. And every team, I've done three Soheim Cups, a couple other uh, international crown things, and, and, you know, that sort of stuff on the LPGA that are, you know, the, the team aspect. It, it's fun because people, you know, they put different kinds of pressure on themselves because they're playing, you know, for a country and, and for a partner. So Ryder Cup would be uh, pretty dang cool, I think. Who's the most underrated LPGA player you've ever seen? Ooh, most underrated. Yeah, or some, or somebody that you just go out on the range and just watch her hit balls. Currently, uh, probably by far, and I, I did have the pleasure of caddying for, uh, for a, a year in that in that Solheim Cup as well. Angel Yin, I mean, Angel, and. Uh, it, you know the the the, the wow factor when you, when you hit it and when I caddy for she was 18 you know and you watch somebody hit a ball that hard and you know Ann Van Dam uh, I think you heard Pedersen talk about her at the Solheim Cup being her partner this girl has loads of talent you know she's gonna figure it out and she's gonna be good uh, she she hit a golf ball we played with her in L A this year she hit a golf ball with a three wood and uh, she hit it and I had to turn around and look back at her because it looked like a guy hit it. You know, it's like that, that sound in the flight, how it just kind of starts out like a low missile and just has that launching flight to it. And I just went, holy cow, this girl. Uh, anybody, you know, for a girl when they hit it far is always fun. But uh, somebody like a Shan Shan who never hits it off a string, man, I mean, that's... And the ball control that she has, there's different types of stuff, you know, and different players. But uh, Angel's always fun uh, playing golf. You know, she's... She's got the attitude of, you know, go for you to go for it attitude. And uh, she's not scared to send it. You know, you like being around that stuff and, and golf and, and to watch Ann Dam Van, Van Dam smash it. And we played with Lexi the last couple of days. She's always she's always fun. She can hit. She's a shot maker, man. She can create a shot out of anywhere. What about historically? Like uh, a Lorena Ochoa or, um, you know, Annika or Terry Pock. Yeah. Oh, what, what did I think of their games? I mean, who who's kind of the gold standard for you all the years you've been out there? Lorena Ochoa. People don't understand how good Lorena Ochoa was, which is frightening. You know, it's, I, under, I understand where she was coming from, but the person that she was uh, off the golf course and, and the game she had on the golf course. I mean, she was she was the total package, man, and she really didn't beat herself up practicing she was she was the full package talent wise mental she had it all you know it was unfortunate that she wanted to uh, shut it down and go have a family but you understand she you know she she had that balance in her life which again is part of the full package um the way she hit it she she executed she managed it well and she was long you know it was just it was a it was a 100 percent golfer annika was just a bulldog. She just wore you out. She was the best I've ever seen man or woman inside 120 yards. 
and she she worked at it and worked at it because she knew that they couldn't make golf courses any longer. So she got it to where she can hit it far enough to where she get it down there inside 120, you know, six to ten times a day, and then she was just going to wear you out. And that's how she did it. You know, she didn't really leave it up to the putter. Mm-hmm. As uh, we see a lot nowadays, you know, guys are holding a lot of putts. Annika Sorenstam, in in a lot of people's opinion, was a pretty average putter. You know, she had hot days. You know, I was there when she shot the 59 in Phoenix. Um, you know, so when, when she's wedging it the way she does and then she's hitting par fives and, and she's making putts, it's, yeah, 59 in play, man. I mean, it was no surprise. So, um, yeah. Been a cool ride, man. You get got got to watch some of the best for sure. So that would be my take. Lorena, Lorena was a special. She she was she was special. Annika, Annika just outworked everybody, and and she knew it. Was, I remember actually somebody that I've been asked quite a few times. You know, what was the highlight of your caddy career so far? You know, what what win was it? And I'm I'm like, well, it wasn't a tournament win. I said to be honest with you, I was caddying for Candy Kung, and she was. I believe a 12 seed in the in the match play tournament, and we had gotten to the final four, and we had to get through Annika, and she was number one in the world, and we beat Annika in 20 holes. And I think till this day, that was the biggest enjoyment that I've had caddying. You know, we won a couple so high cups, won uh, five tournaments, winning with Shan Shan when she won uh, to be number one in the world. I mean, th- those are all really special moments. But I think when you beat number one in the world, and uh, at what she's the best at you know that's that's saying something that you're doing something pretty pretty special so well jeff uh we've taken so much of your time really really appreciate it um thank you uh personally for being you know a supporter of us we we've loved working with you guys and it's really cool to hear about not only your story but about the origin of of king made jerky so all right, boys, we'll catch up with you soon, then. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Jeff. Okay. Thank All right, man. Nice is the spot for that track draw.